Good morning, everyone. I want to begin by saying thank you to all of those who came out yesterday and uh, helped us with our display at Glen Allen Day, uh, particularly those of you who were there early because it was cold early. Uh, but we had a great time handing out uh, copies of the Bible. We gave out dozens of Bibles, uh, other uh, Bible-related material, uh, children's Bible storybooks, just all kinds of things, and invited a lot of folks to come and visit us at some point, and we're hoping and praying that they will, and I want you to keep those folks in your prayers uh, that they will come. But we do appreciate the efforts that everybody put forth in uh, making that possible and uh, taking part in it. It was a great, uh, great day and a beautiful opportunity to be out on a beautiful day and also to have the opportunity to tell more people about, about the Lord. I want to read to you some of the saddest words that are found in the Bible. They come from Psalms 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Those are the words of an unknown exile, an unidentified exile, who was in captivity in Babylon, thinking about all that had been lost, thinking with regret, not only about Jerusalem, as he goes ahead to talk about, and, and how much you missed it, how much you wished to be able to be back there, but also thinking about how awful it was to be exiled in a foreign land and to be tormented because you couldn't be at home and to be tormented about the songs of the Lord. How can we sing the, the Lord's song in a place like this, in a foreign land? Not just that the land was foreign, but the land was pagan. How do you sing the Lord's song there? That's the kind of despair you might expect from an exile. That's the kind of despair you might expect from somebody who's been forced out of their home, uh, taken away to a foreign land who has no prospect of ever being able to go back. Those are the words of an exile. What do you tell somebody who's in that situation? If you were advising somebody who's in exile, what would you say? Would you say, just keep your chin up? Just do the best that you can do and see how it work, all works out. Just grit your teeth and just put up with it. Or would you tell them to keep their expectations low? You know, if you keep your expectations low enough, you'll surely not ever be disappointed. Uh, would that be the advice that you would give? Well, none of those things are what Peter tells Christian exiles as he begins his letter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He doesn't say any of those things to them. Far from it. As a matter of fact... In verse 3, after addressing them as exiles of the dispersion, he breaks into praise. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for what he has done for us. Now, these are exiles he's writing to. These are people who, because of their faith in Christ, are not in their real home. They're not in their true home. They're on their way to be with God. But for now, they have to live uh, in this earth, in this world, and this world can be toxic to faith. And yet, he says, blessed be God for all the great things that he has done in Jesus Christ. God is at work, he says. No matter what we are experiencing, no matter what we are going through, God is at work. And I hope that you and I will remember that every day 
of our lives when we hear the news reports and when we see the headlines and when we just find ourselves thinking, you know, this world is just going to the dogs and we, and we love the dogs and we hate to see the world go to them that way. You know, it, it, it's just so awful and we just shake our heads and we wring our hands and we think how terrible it is. We need to be thinking about how great God is and what God has done and what God will yet do. Now, one of those things, those blessings that he talks about that God has done is he has already granted to us this great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. He says this is a salvation into which we have been born again. Remember, that's what Jesus told Nicodemus, that Pharisee who came to him by night and wanted to discuss theology. And he says, Lord, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And Jesus just looked straight at him and said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't know what to make of that. And he says, how, how is that possible? How can, you, can a man reenter his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's that simple, Nicodemus. It's that plain. Well, Peter's writing to folks who have done that. They have been born of water and the Spirit. And uh, they are in Christ. And so they have been born anew. And as a result of that, they have become followers of Jesus Christ, and because they become followers of Jesus Christ, some wonderful things have happened. You know, when you became a Christian, you didn't just say some words and get wet. That wasn't what that was about, that confession and being baptized. That wasn't a, a ritual. That wasn't a formality. That was a, a part of your new birth. That was how God brings about the new birth, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we enjoy it, even now, while we're exiled from our true home, we know that the fulfillment of it isn't here yet. We know that we will experience the fulfillment of that salvation, as Peter says, when it's ready to be revealed in the last time. God will eventually do something even better for us. We've already been born anew. We've already been given new life. We've already been given a relationship with God that we never had before. But one of these days, it's going to be even better than that. Now, even as exiles in a world that's toxic to our faith, Peter says we can live with hope and joy because of this great salvation that we have. That's what this paragraph that you just heard read is about. The first, actually, 12 verses of chapter 1, if we look at the, uh, the entire thing. And the reason I say down through verse 12, verses 3 through 12 in the, in the Greek, are one long, complex sentence. If you're looking at it in your Bible, you're thinking, that's a bunch of long, complex sentences in English, and it is. But in Greek, it's just one long, complex sentence, just connected by phrase after phrase after phrase, as though Peter can't, kind of can't stop and, take it and catch his breath, telling us about the greatness of our salvation. But there's two thoughts that come out over and over again in those words, and that's hope, and joy, hope and joy, the blessings that God has given to Christian exiles. Now, that's a clue for us. As we live our healthy Christian lives, as we strive to live them, in, in a toxic world, our reaction should not be depression, and it shouldn't be hand-holding, hand-wringing, and fretting, and all of those other kinds of things. It ought to be that we're living lives of joy and hope. And you know, I believe if we spoke to people around us more about the joy and the hope that we have instead of our, 
our, our disgust and our disappointment and our dismay with the world as it is, if we spoke more about our hope and our joy, do you think more of those folks might want to be part of Christ too? Don't you think that more of them might say, you know, those Christians are not as dull and dumb as I thought they were. It is what a lot of people think, you know. Uh, but if we talk to them about our hope and joy, they might think differently. They might want to be filled with hope and joy as well. Let's think for a few minutes about each one of those themes. First of all, hope. Hope uh, means confidently expecting that something good is going to happen. That's hope. It's the confident expectation of something good that's going to happen. It's not wishful thinking. It's expectation. It's realistic expectation. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 24, Paul talks about how we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies, how we wait for that time, how we long for that time when we will rise from the grave. And, and we know that the, the grave is coming for all of us, but we know that we're going to rise from it because God has promised us that. And as we wait for that, he says, for in this hope we were saved, for hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. If you've already seen it, if you already realize it, it's not hope. Hope always has that future look. Hope always has that expectation about it. That something good is going to happen. Something good is going to take place. Get an example of that in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. Again, talking to exiles. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. He says there's going to be a time when you'll be home again. These people who've been exiled into Babylon. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Now, he's not saying, you know, you guys get together and, and uh, kind of dim the lights and hold hands and wish that things were better than they are. Or talk about how great it used to be. He says, I want you to be filled with hope, with the expectation that you and your children after you will come back to their own country. They won't be exiles anymore. And just like those Israelites, we in Christ have the hope of going to our true home. We believe that's what's going to happen. We're not just wishing it would happen or thinking that maybe it'll happen. We believe that it's going to happen. Now, we need to understand that when Peter wrote this, hope was something that not a lot of people had. Hope was not a characteristic of the ancient world. In fact, most people lived very dreary, hopeless lives. The Greek philosophers were fond of telling people, fear nothing, desire nothing, possess nothing, and then life, with all of its ingenuity of malice, cannot disappoint you. Now, there's a philosophy to live by in there. Don't desire anything, don't want anything, don't have anything, and then don't expect anything, and guess what? You'll never be disappointed. There's an epitaph that's found on a lot of ancient gravestones, and it says, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. Isn't, isn't that a great message? Isn't that a horrible message? Have that engraved on your tombstone. You're going to be there saying, this, this is my life. I, I didn't used to be, but then I was for a while, and I'm not now, and who cares? 
Not, not, not very hopeful. It was not a hopeful world into which Jesus came. And one of the reasons why Christianity found such a ready audience in the ancient world was that people were attracted to hope. They were looking for hope. They didn't like that life. They didn't like that, that toxicity uh, of hopelessness in which they live, that dreariness. And all the philosophies and all the religions around them were just telling them, you know, just, just hang in there and maybe it won't get too much worse. That, that's all they could tell them. But they really offered them no hope. Peter says, our hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not through wishful thinking, but based on the reality of an event, based on the reality of the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And because it's based on the resurrection, Peter calls it a living hope. You have been born anew, he says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what's a living hope? Well, the opposite of it would be a dead hope. It is not a dead hope. A dead hope is one that isn't productive. A dead hope is one that's unrealistic. A dead hope is one that doesn't get you anywhere. When I was teaching at VCU, they used to have a, uh, each semester uh, student survey forms at the end to evaluate the course and, and the teacher and all that kind of thing. And, and I always thought it was odd, but one of the questions on there was, what grade did you expect to receive when you enrolled for this class? I just always thought that was odd because how do you know? When you enroll for a class, how do you know how difficult the material is going to be? Uh, how do you know how obtuse the professor is going to be? Uh, you know, how, do, how do you know? But they asked them that question, what grade did you expect to receive when you enrolled? And then what grade did you receive? And it was always interesting to look at that because you'd have all these people who made C's and D's and sometimes F's, you know. But their expectation was an A. You know, very few, very few, but once in a while, but very few students would ever say, I expected this. And then there was another question, what grade did you deserve? Oh, and that's when it got really interesting, you know, <laughs> and the more honest ones, you know. But, but I just thought that was really odd. What grade did you expect when you enrolled for this course? And then, you know, they'd get into the course, and some of them wouldn't put forth any effort, but they still expected to get that A or, or that B. That's a dead hope. Now, so many folks today are living their lives with a dead hope. When we did our series on the study of heaven, we talked about the fact that there are a lot of people who are hoping for annihilation. That's what they hope for. They hope that at the end of this life that they will just cease to exist, that they just make it through this life and then there isn't anything else. That's not much of a hope. That's a dead hope. Because that's not what's going to happen. The scripture tells us that's not what's going to happen. Scripture says it is appointed unto man to die once, and then what? After that comes judgment. We are still living. We are still in existence. Others are putting their hope in reincarnation. You know, human recycling. Did you know that's where the recycling movement got its whole impetus was from the notion of reincarnation, that people are reincarnated and so the world is just going to be recycled, you know, and it's going to go through phases and come back in a different form and so we ought to be careful what we do with our bottles and cans. That, that's the logic of it or the illogic of it. 
A lot of folks are real hopeful for reincarnation. But you know, all that is is the hope that after this life, and no matter how tough it is, and no matter how, how difficult it might be to live through this life, that there'll be another one. And then after that, there'll be another one. And after that, there'll be, there'll be another one. And that's not much hope. That's a dead hope. There are people who are living with the hope of materialism, thinking they can just get enough stuff. Somehow that's going to shield them from the reality of death. And it doesn't. Some are putting their dead hope in a God who doesn't care what they do with their lives. And so he doesn't judge anybody. And so at the end of at the end of their lives, there's just, you know, God just says, okay, whatever. That's a dead hope because he does care what you do with your life. That's what the Ten Commandments were about. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about God saying, I care what you do with your life. It's what judgment is about. It's about God saying, I want you to know that at the end of your life, you're going to give account for the way that you've lived. Because he cares about what we do. But the Christian hope, the living hope that Peter writes about, says that because Jesus overcame death, his followers will too. And that that life that we have is eternal life. Eternal life. A life that never ends. A life that shares in the quality of the life of God. That is the living hope to which we've been called. You know, in Scripture, there are several images of hope. Uh, the book of the prophet Hosea calls hope a door. The prophet said, And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I'm going to open a door of hope. It doesn't look too good for Israel right now, but I'm going to open a door of hope for them. Hebrews 6.19 calls it an anchor. An anchor. The hope of salvation, he says, is sure, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. That hope anchors our lives. It gives us stability. It gives us certainty. that We can't be blown off course because God has promised. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul calls it a helmet. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, when the world is trying to batter you and get inside your head and beat you up, so you've got that helmet of hope for salvation. And now Peter adds another image for hope. He calls it an inheritance. In verses 3 and 4, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. F.W. Bear, in his commentary on 1 Peter paraphrases it this way. He says it's a salvation and inheritance that is untouched by death, untainted by evil, and unimpaired by time. Our salvation, our hope, has no expiration date. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to rust out. It's not going to disintegrate. It's going to be there when God calls us to receive it. 
our salvation never becomes invalid. Now, why does Peter say all this about our salvation and about our hope? Because remember, these people that he was writing to first, these exiles in Ponta, Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Galatia, were suffering persecution. They weren't just living in a hard world. They were suffering persecution. They were actively suffering for their faith. In verse 7, he mentions them being tested by fire. And in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, he says that we've been called to suffering because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You know, there's one thing for certain that we need to remember. When you follow Jesus closely, you will pay a price. You will pay a price. Because you're living in a world that does not take Jesus seriously. And if you do, then that world will make you pay. It, it's that simple. And it is that, it is that certain. It is that inevitable. Some of you are already paying that price. Some of you experience <coughs> ridicule because of your faith. Some of you are encountering various kinds of resistance to your faith and to your, to your service to Christ. You're already experiencing some of that rejection and, and perhaps even worse things than those. But when you're suffering for Christ, you need to remember that there's something waiting for you at the end that makes it all worthwhile. That's what the living hope is all about. Then there's joy, because you see, the living hope leads naturally to joy. When you are convinced about this hope, when that is a part of your mentality, when that's a part of your thinking, then joy is naturally going to follow. Now, let me be clear. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Kim and I would have been happy yesterday if the Red Raiders had won that game, which they nearly won, but they didn't. But that doesn't take away our joy, right? Okay, she said it took hers. All right. It doesn't take away our joy. You see, happiness is circumstantial. Happiness means that we are delighted because of the circumstances. Things are going our way. Things are turning out the way we, we want them to. Uh, it may be that things are going well at work, they're going well at home, they're going well in the, in, with your health. and So because of those circumstances, you are happy. That's not joy. That's not joy. Joy is a lot deeper than that. Joy is rooted in something much deeper than that. Not your circumstances, but in God himself. And so joy transcends circumstances. The Apostle Paul did not just write rejoice always. He said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. You can rejoice always because of the Lord. You may not be happy all the time about your circumstances, but you can still rejoice in the Lord. You remember when Paul and Silas got arrested and thrown in a Roman prison? And about midnight, what were they doing? They were praying and singing hymns to God. They were expressing their joy, even though they were being mistreated, even though they had been beaten and thrown in prison. In verse 6, Peter says, In this hope you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You can always have joy when you have hope. 
In the latter part of verse 8, he says, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You don't see him right now. You don't see the realization of that. That's because it's hope. See, we're looking forward to it. But still, even though you don't see him, you still believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. So don't miss the connection between hope and joy. When you have that living hope, you can't help but have the joy. The joy is going to follow no matter what is happening. And so if you're lacking in joy, it may be that you've let that hope slip. It may be that you need to focus more on the blessing of the hope that God has given you because of Jesus Christ. We need Peter's reminder, don't we? I'm sure the Peter, people that he was first writing to needed this reminder as they were undergoing persecution. They needed to be reminded, folks, you have hope. And because you have hope, you can have joy in spite of what's going on. It doesn't lessen the disappointment. It doesn't make pain any less pain, but it does make it more bearable. That's why Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What did he say Jesus was thinking about as he faced the cross? He was looking past it. He was looking past it, looking beyond it. He was looking beyond that cross to the joy that was set before him. When things get tough in our lives, that's what we need to do. We need to keep our joy intact in focus and remember that it's worth it. Notice that Peter says in verses 6 and 7 that it's for a little while. A little while we may be grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith, Peter says, is like gold. It's precious, but it's got to be tested. But he said it's more valuable than gold. You know how gold is purified? You've heard this before probably. You heat it up. And when you heat it sufficiently, it becomes liquid. And then the impurities that are in it are going to float to the top. That's called the dross. It's kind of a scum on the top. And you, and you skim that off. And what you're left with is a much purer gold. And then you do that over and over and over again. And you just keep refining it. And that's the image that Peter uses of our lives in Christ. He said we are constantly, we're being heated up. We're being heated up so that the, the dross can be skimmed away. And we can become purer in our faith and stronger in our faith. But you see, unlike gold, our hope and our joy can't be destroyed. It cannot be destroyed. And all of that is possible because we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't now see Jesus. But Peter says you still love him. You don't now see him, but you rejoice with inexpressible joy and obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Hope and joy, that's the way we live in this life. I want to point out to you something that Peter did not say. Peter did not say that if you follow Jesus, everything will go your way. There are lots of folks who do say that, 
And it's a lie. Scripture never says that. Jesus never says that. None of the apostles ever said that. It is a modern lie invented to make people, allow people to hear what they want to hear. It is not true. That if you follow Jesus, everything's necessarily going to go your way. What Peter says is that no matter what you go through in following Jesus, your hope and joy make it worth it. And at the end, you will be blessed beyond imagination. You will be blessed more than you could ever imagine. In fact, following Jesus may actually make it tougher in some ways for you to live in this world because you're not conforming with everybody else. You're not just going along with everything everybody else says and does. That may make it harder. But you live by that living hope and that inexpressible joy that comes to those who know and love and follow Jesus. Long time ago, in conversation with a man, he told me that the reason he didn't follow Jesus was because he'd had so much suffering in his life. And he'd had a lot. He told me about it. He'd had so much suffering in his life. And so he didn't want to follow Jesus. I tried to point out to him as gently as I could that not following Jesus had not kept him from suffering. And that by not following Jesus, nothing good was going to come from his suffering. But that if if he followed Jesus, then he would have hope. And there'd be a time when all of his suffering would be over and he'd be richly blessed. I don't know what he did with that because I never saw him again. I hope, I hope that he thought about it and that he eventually turned to Christ And I hope you think about it and turn to Christ too, if you haven't already. I hope you'll want that hope and that joy, that knowledge that there is waiting for you an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then you can live with hope and with joy. That's what God wants for you. It comes when you follow Jesus. If you're ready to start following him today, to repent of sin and be baptized into his name, We invite you to come. Let's stand together and sing.